Good morning. My name is Mike, and I'm making this podcast because I like to learn and create new things, and because I'm trying to get the word out about something else that I've made called the Flex Deck. It is a multi-purpose deck of cards that lets you play dominoes, word games, and your traditional poker or rummy all in one deck of cards. Today, I'm reading the Everglades National Park article from Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia, and place to go to for the questions, not the answers, similar to this podcast. For the answers, I encourage you to support your local library. Human history. Native peoples. Humans likely first inhabited the South Florida region 10,000 to 20,000 years ago. Two tribes of Native Americans developed on the peninsula's southern tip. The Tequesta lived on the eastern side, and the Calusa, greater in numbers, on the western side. The Everglades served as a natural boundary between them. The Tequesta lived in a single, large community near the mouth of the Miami River, while the Calusa lived in 30 villages. Both groups traveled through the Everglades, but rarely lived within them remaining mostly along the coast. The diets of both groups consisted mostly of shellfish and fish, small mammals, game, and wild plants. Having access only to soft limestone, most of the tools fashioned by Native Americans in the region were made of shell, bone, wood, and animal teeth. Shark teeth were used as cutting blades, and sharpened reeds became arrows and spears. Shell mounds still exist today within the park, giving archaeologists and anthropologists evidence of the raw materials available to the indigenous people for tool construction. Spanish explorers estimated the number of Tequesta at first contact to be around 800, and Calusa at 2,000. The National Park Service reports there were probably about 20,000 natives living in or near the Everglades when the Spanish established contact in the late 16th century. The Calusa society was more advanced as they lived in the social strata and were able to create canals, earthworks, and shellworks. The Calusa were also able to resist Spanish attempts at conquest. The Spanish had contact with these societies and established missions further north near Lake Okeechobee. In the 18th century, invading creeks incorporated the dwindling numbers of the Tequesta into their own. Neither the Tequesta nor Calusa tribe existed by 1800. Disease, warfare, and capture for slavery were the reasons for the eradication of both groups. The only evidence of their existence within the park boundaries is a series of shell mounds that were built by the Calusa. In the early 19th century, Creeks escaped African slaves and other Indians from northern Florida displaced by the Creek War formed the area's Seminole Nation. After the end of the Seminole Wars in 1842, the Seminoles faced relocation to Indian Territory near Oklahoma. A few hundred Seminole hunters and scouts settled within what is today Big Cypress National Preserve to escape the forced emigration to the West. From 1859 to about 1930, the Seminoles and Mikoski, a similar but linguistically unique tribe, 
lived in relative isolation, making their living by trading. In 1928, surveying and construction began on the Tamiami Trail along the northern border of Everglades National Park. The road bisected the Everglades, introducing a steady, if small, traffic of white settlers into the Everglades. Some members of the Mikoski and Seminole tribes continue to live within park boundaries. Management of the park includes approval of new policies and procedures by tribal representatives, quote, in such a manner that they do not conflict with the park purpose, end quote. American Settlements Following the end of the Seminole Wars, Americans began settling at isolated points along the coast in what is now the park from the 10,000 Islands to Cape Sable. Communities developed on the two largest pieces of dry ground in the area, on Chocoloski Island and at Flamingo on Cape Sable, both of which established post offices in the early 1890s. Chocoloski Island is a shell mound, a midden built roughly 20 feet or 6 meters high over thousands of years of occupation by the Calusa. The settlements in Chocoluski and Flamingo served as trading centers for small populations of farmers, fishermen, and charcoal burners settled in the 10,000 islands. Both settlements and the more isolated homesteads could only be reached by boat until well into the 20th century. Everglades City, on the mainland near Chocoluski, enjoyed a brief period of prosperity when, beginning in 1920, it served as the headquarters for construction of the Tam Miami Trail. A dirt road from Florida City reached Flamingo in 1922, while a causeway finally connected Chocoloski to the mainland's Everglades City in 1956. After the park was established, private property in the Flamingo area was claimed by eminent domain, and the site was incorporated into the park as a visitor center. Land Development and Conservation Several attempts were made to drain and develop the Everglades in the 1880s. The first canals built in the Everglades did little harm to this ecosystem, as they were unable to drain much of it. Napoleon Bonaparte Broward based the majority of his 1904 campaign for governor on how drainage would create, quote, the empire of the Everglades, end quote. Broward ordered the drainage that took place between 1905 and 1910, and it was successful enough that the land developers sold tracts for $30 per acre, settling the town of Davie and developing regions in Lee and Dade counties. The canals also cleared water that made way for agricultural fields growing sugarcane. In the 1920s, a population boom in South Florida created the Florida land boom, which was described by author Michael Grunwald as quote-unquote insanity. Land was sold before any homes or structures were built on it, and in some cases, before any plans for construction were in place. New landowners, eager to make good on their investments, hastily constructed homes and small towns on recently drained land. Mangrove trees on the coasts were taken down for better views and replaced with shallow-rooted palm trees. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers began construction on larger canals to control the rising waters in the Everglades. 
Nevertheless, Lake Okeechobee continued to rise and fall. The region was covered with rain, and city planners continued to battle the water. The 1926 Miami hurricane caused Lake Okeechobee levees to fail. Hundreds of people south of the lake drowned. Two years later, the 1928 Okeechobee hurricane claimed 2,500 lives when Lake Okeechobee once again surged over its levees. Politicians who declared the Everglades uninhabitable were silenced when a four-story wall, the Herbert Hoover Dyke, was built around Lake Okeechobee. This wall effectively cut off the water source from the Everglades. Following the wall's construction, South Florida endured a drought severe enough to cause serious wildfires in 1939. The influx of humans had a detrimental effect on the plants and animals of the region when melaleuca trees were introduced to help with drainage, along with Australian pines brought in by developers as windbreaks. The region's timber was devastated for lumber supplies. Alligators, birds, frogs, and fish were hunted on a large scale. Entire rookeries of wading birds were shot to collect their plums, which were used in women's hats in the early 20th century. The largest impact people had on the region was the diversion of water away from the Everglades. Canals were deepened and widened, and water levels fell dramatically, causing chaos in food webs. Salt water replaced fresh water in the canals, and by 1997, scientists noticed that salt water was seeping into the Biscayne Aquifer, South Florida's water source. In the 1940s, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, a freelance writer and former reporter for the Miami Herald, began to research the Everglades for an assignment about the Miami River. She studied the land and water for five years and published the Everglades River of Grass in 1947, describing the area in great detail, including a chapter on its disappearance. She wrote, quote, What had been a river of grass and sweet water that had given meaning and life and uniqueness to this enormous geography through centuries in which man had no place here was made. In one chaotic gesture of greed and ignorance and folly, a river of fire, end quote. The book has sold 500,000 copies since its publication, and Douglas's continued dedication to ecology conservation earned her the nicknames Grand Dame of the Everglades, Grandmother of the Everglades, and the Antichrist for her singular focus at the expense of some political interests. She founded and served as president for an organization called Friends of the Everglades, initially intended to protest the construction of a proposed Big Cypress jet port in 1968. Successful in that confrontation, the organization has grown to over 4,000 members, committed to the preservation of the Everglades. She wrote and spoke about the importance of the Everglades until her death at the age of 108 in 1998. Well, that'll make this that for now. This is Mike with FlexDeckPlayingCards.com. Thank you as always for listening. My apologies for any mistakes or mispronunciations that I may have made. The words are not my own. This is just a reading of Wikipedia. If you'd like to support this podcast, I hope you'll visit our website. Again, that's FlexDeck playingcards.com or leave us a favorable review on whatever service it is that you're listening to this. Thanks again. Have a great day.